Hello, readers. Brian North is a best-selling author, an Eisner Award-winning comic book writer, and the creator of Dinosaur Comics. His newest book is titled How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. Ryan, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So how did this book originate, Ryan? Uh, it originated, I'd written a previous book called How to Invent Everything, Survival Guide for the Stranded Time Traveler. And the premise there was that you rented a time machine, it's gone back in time, it's stranded you in the past, it's broken. And this is the repair guide for that time machine. The repair guide says, you can't repair a time machine, it's too complicated. So what we'll do is instead teach you how to bring the future back to you and how to build a civilization from scratch. And that process of using a fictional motivation <laughs> to motivate learning about nonfiction, I was really interested in that. And I thought this idea of uh, wanting, be, be wanting to be a supervillain and trying to take over the world and using that as a lens to explore some really interesting uh, cutting edge science and technology would be fun with the added bonus that anyone who bought the book and have a book on their shelf that says how to take over the world on the spine, which I think is always a bonus. <laughs> so this book is broken up into three different parts, nine total chapters. Part one is super basic super villainy. Chapter one is every super villain needs a base. The idea here, of course, is that you want a secret territory completely isolated from the rest of the world that requires um that requires you to be completely self-sufficient in the process. That means providing your own power, food, and water for you and your henchmen and henchwomen. That's a mm -hmm. pretty big estimation to have to make on one's own, unless a version of this experiment has been tried before, and apparently it has. What was yes. Biosphere 2, not to be confused with the popular Pauly Shore Stephen Baldwin film Biodome, and how did Biosphere 2 go? Yeah, Biosphere 2 was incredible. It's the sort of thing that happens a lot in fiction, but you don't expect to happen in reality, where basically a bunch of people got together and befriended a billionaire who could fund it, and they wanted to see if they could build a self-sufficient society inside a dome. So in theory, nothing but power goes in and nothing but information comes out, and they want it to be renewable and everything recycled and just build a second biosphere inside the Earth. And they built it, which is the crazy part. And it worked. Uh, it wasn't without challenges, tons of challenges, obviously. But the one that they weren't expecting, the eight men and women, four men and four women who went into Biosphere 2, they were all friends. They've been working on this project for a long time, and they thought the interpersonal stuff would be the easiest. And it turns out uh, you lock people in a room and they get weird and sad pretty quickly. And so what happened in Biosphere 2 is the two groups broke into two groups of four that grew to hate each other. <laughs> they saw the other group as being responsible for, for challenges and for uh, obstacles they'd face. And there'd be instances where like, they'd spit in each other's faces, just like horrible, horrible things that happened because you have humans that were isolated and their whole world was reduced to these seven other people, or in most cases, in the end, three other people. With the added stresses of uh, they didn't expect that Biosphere 2 would be popular. They didn't expect to become a tourist attraction. And so the dome was mostly glass and there are very few places to get privacy. And the food was never quite enough. So they'd be uh, staring at hot dog vendors for entertainment just to feel like food was nearby. Um, but 
the nice thing about that is this very expensive and very complicated scientific experiment has already been done. And so we know um, we have a much better idea of how much food we need to support a person in, a, in an isolated area. And we have an idea of what we should look for uh, as warning signs and in hench people to prevent them from getting all weird and sad as is what happened in Biosphere 2. So it was this example in the book where you take what seems to be a ludicrous premise of I want a self-sufficient secret base that no one can find and that is completely its own air, water, power cycle. And uh, this has been attempted <laughs> and we have actual science on this process. Perhaps a required reading of Lord of the Flies should be uh, on the docket <laughs> before somebody's allowed to this super secret island or super secret base. Perhaps, yes. Uh, so where you put this base is another big question that you try and tackle. You explore underground, in the ocean, in the skies, even in outer space. Why is an uninhabited island in the middle of the Pacific not a viable option? Because I got to tell you... <laughs> And just thinking about this and embarking on this part of the chapter, I assumed that would be the ultimate answer. Yeah, you'd, you'd think so. And, you know, it was a great option in the 20s and 30s. But we started putting satellites in orbit and the Earth has tons of cameras pointing down at it all the time. And strike one is there's no uninhabited Pacific Island shaped like Skull Street to just march in and take over. <laughs> and strike two is if they were, if you build one, it would be discovered uh, very quickly. <laughs> and so that the secret part of the secret base isn't there anymore. So that is uh, what you label inferior plans of lesser minds in each of these <laughs> chapters. Chapter two is how to start your own country. The inferior plans of lesser minds in this chapter involves something called taking lands through soft force. What exactly is this? And why is this ultimately not a very good idea for an aspiring supervillain? Yeah. Um, one of the things in the book that I always kept in mind when writing it is that uh, I wanted to do super crime. And so regular crime is, for example, robbing a bank. But a supervillain super crime is stealing a bank. You bring it to the next level and you steal the actual building. And so in this chapter, looking at, at starting your own country, one of the obvious things to do is, well, why don't we just, is there someone we can induce a country to take over for us? Can I, can I become president or prime minister of some existing uh, country? Can I induce a revolution in my favor? And uh, the issue with that is uh, even if you succeed, it's not guaranteed. There's lots of examples of, of revolutions that didn't go well for the people organizing them, the French revolution, uh, one of them the person organized it end up getting guillotined after guillotining a bunch of other people. Um, there's still this uh, issue of managing a country and the way power exchange works in human societies. And unless you are someone like Dr. Doom, who is basically a one arm, <laughs> one man armored suit that's also magic, uh, you need to rely on people to support you when you're running a country. And that means there's people that you need to keep happy. And that means that even if you have this infinite greed, it's going to be subservient to their greed because without their support, you lose this power. So what starts with this fantasy of I want to have a country, make everyone do what I want, uh, in the reality becomes this study of, of human nature and power exchange and politics. And what I end up concluding for the, uh, my suggested course of action is the only plan in the book that has a ticking clock uh, because 
Antarctica, the land claims there were frozen in the 50s, basically to prevent war. There were all these countries in Antarctica. Everyone has these different claims. And countries got together and decided, let's just freeze the claims. No one can make any movement. We'll just lock it here and some future generation will solve it. And that has left a slice of land called Mary Birdland that is not officially claimed by any country, but there are research bases there. So if you had a research base, you could gradually expand. And um, when this treaty is scheduled to thaw out in 2048, uh, you would have a reasonable claim to that land for yourself. Now, it's not guaranteed. Um, nothing is guaranteed when, when dealing with, with national sovereignty. And it's a thing that is a zero-sum game. If you're gaining land for your country, some other nation is losing land for theirs. So there's there's high stakes, but it is, I think, a viable way to, over the course of the next 30 or so years, start your own country uh, and not need a military, not have to have violence, not have to take land from someone else, but to start land new on this last piece of earth that isn't officially claimed by any other nation. Part two is what we talk about when we talk about taking over the world. <laughs> that leads us to chapter three, cloning dinosaurs and mm. some terrible news for all who dare oppose you. Need to note that terrible is spelled like pterodactyl with a P at the front there. Is it possible to clone a dinosaur as done by Jurassic Park with a mosquito trapped in amber? Yeah, uh, the bad news there is no. Uh, DNA is a organic compound. Like forgetting all the technology you need to clone animals. DNA is an organic compound and it decays. And there was a study that found it has a half-life of about 521 years. So after half a century, half of it's gone. After another half century, the other half is gone. And this means after a few million years, um, there wouldn't be enough to recover an animal. And we're looking at 65 million years in the past. So that path is pretty much close to us. But um, we have the advantage that well, we once thought dinosaurs went extinct. We now know that some avian dinosaurs survived and became the birds around us. And it so happens that chickens are one of the most studied birds on the planet because their whole developmental environment is in an egg. We can examine it. We can modify it. And there are scientists who believe that if you could recover old gene expressions that are no longer being used, uh, that dinosaur-like information might still be there. And if you could trigger it while the embryo is developing, uh, you could produce a chicken that instead of a beak has teeth and instead of wings has arms. And instead of uh, those cute rounded chicken butts has a dinosaur-like tail and produce a very dinosaur-like chicken. If you do that to a chicken, you could maybe do it to an ostrich. If you do it to an ostrich, you produced a dinosaur-like ostrich um, there's a lot of caveats there. Obviously, um, when you bring back an animal, uh, you're, you're, you, the animal culture has been lost. Birds uh, teach songs to their young. Um, that can't be repeated. And also, like this is clearly not a dinosaur. This is a bird that has had a bespoke developmental environment to make it look like a dinosaur. But the benefit there is that... Um, the animal's DNA hasn't been changed. We just changed how it was expressed when it was developing. And so if this dinosaur ostrich could reproduce with a regular ostrich, you would get regular ostriches. You're not getting a dinosaurs take over the world situation here. And, you know, Jurassic Park, if this dinosaur-like ostrich escaped, um, there are a lot of people who 
eat chickens and ostriches. Like we have an infrastructure for, for handling this. So it's one of those situations in which the fantasy of cloning dinosaurs isn't true, but the reality of what people are working on and what we might be able to accomplish is surprisingly close. And honestly, the distinction between a true dinosaur and a ostrich that looks and perhaps behaves like a dinosaur is so thin that if you as a supervillain made an entrance riding this dinosaur, um, the objections of those who say, well, technically it's not really a dinosaur, uh, you could just overrule those with a squawk from this beast, the steed that you're riding. So it's it's a fun uh, chapter and a fun way to learn a lot about um, where we are with, with de-extinction. People are trying this on passenger pigeons and woolly mammoths and other less charismatic animals and dinosaurs too, but this idea of can we undo an extinction is something that is really appealing to a lot of people for, I think, really obvious reasons. It feels like fixing a mistake. I'm glad you mentioned the woolly mammoths because George M. Church is responsible for the woolly mammoth project. Mm -hmm. He is taking DNA extracted from woolly mammoths who are frozen, I think, north of Russia. Siberia, yeah. Siberia, yes, with Asian elephants, which are a very close relative and using CRISPR technology as well. Hypothetically speaking, would it be CRISPR that would help unlock the dinosaur potential in a chicken when you're talking about gene editing? Yeah, it's like it's the same idea for the woolly mammoth where you say, okay, well, what does a woolly mammoth have? They have hemoglobin that's more resistant to cold. So let's put that in if we can. They've got um, heavier coats, so we can put that in if we can. Um, and at the end of that, the result is an animal that looks like what we think a woolly mammoth should look like. Um, they don't have the same culture. They're still effectively the same animal, but if there's a way to do this, um, there is a way to bring back a version of the woolly mammoth. And that's, I think, really, really interesting. No doubt. And side note on this chapter, I loved how you put the two illustrations next to one another of the chicken skeleton and then a dinosaur skeleton. Very similar looking. People should check the book out for that and plenty of other reasons. Chapter four is controlling the weather for the perfect crime. The plan you suggest to control the weather is inspired by volcanic eruptions, but not the ash being pushed into the sky that temporarily blocks the sun. Rather, sulfur dioxide is the key here. Why sulfur mm -hmm. dioxide and what makes it such a feasible option? So this is a plan that's called geoengineering. And the idea is uh, when a volcano erupts, it puts ash in the air. And we know that large volcanoes can cool the planet because the sunlight no longer reaches the planet. It's reflected off by this ash. And calculations have shown that if you could reflect um, enough sunlight, you could reduce global temperatures to what they were before the Industrial Revolution, basically undoing all that carbon dioxide caused climate change. And one way you can do it is with, as you say, uh, sulfur dioxide, where you modify planes to go up into the stratosphere and they release this sulfur dioxide, which is white, which reflects the sunlight back. And calculations have shown there's been budgets made for this that with uh, $7 billion in startup costs for plane and supplies and about 2 to $3 billion ongoing, uh, you could do this. This is something that is surprisingly achievable. Um, the reason it hasn't been done is it's also really dangerous. As I point out in the book, um, you know, there's, there's the, the stuff you might see off the bat of, are we sure this will work? No, 
what if it works too well? Like all these sort of things. It's, a, it's an experiment done at the global scale and that is clearly dangerous. But the real one that I think that makes this the most dangerous is that if, if you do this, everything works great, uh, you still change your conception of nature because when you change the sunlight hitting the planet, uh, you're going to change not just the climate, so the weather. And now change the world's climate and weather, then there are people who would blame you, who would say this is this is your fault. And that to me feels like uh, a recipe for <laughs> war and a lot of bad things to happen. The other issue is that it doesn't fully solve climate change. There's still a problem with ocean acidification, all sorts of stuff that isn't solved by just lowering the temperature. But it was the one plan in the book where it's a cool thing to talk about. There's some really interesting science happening there. But I didn't want, it, because it was so affordable and so achievable, I didn't want, you know, uh, uh, Bill Gates or Elon Musk to put down the book and say, you know what, I should, acting alone, uh, change <laughs> the climate of the earth. So there's a, a section in that chapter that's um, more direct saying, do not do this. But also, like, the, I feel like with most things, if I'm a, I'm a comic writer, I wrote this book to explore uh, how feasible comic book schemes were in the real world. If I can see this, um, other people can see it too. The answer isn't to hide. The answer is to be aware of it and be ready to discuss it. There are a couple points in this book where you are very clearly saying, like, look, I understand how a supervillain would want to do this, but generally speaking, this is a terrible idea to try and make happen. For instance, Chapter 7, Destroying the Internet to Save Us All, uh, you come out very vocally against the idea of putting political elections on computers. Who is Ken Thompson? What was his 1984 paper titled Reflections on Trusting Trust? Yes, Ken Thompson uh, is a brilliant computer scientist. And that paper, Reflections on Trusting Trust, basically walks you through this uh, huge vulnerability that all computers share. The high-level version of it is that writing computer programs in computer code in binary ones and zeros is really, really hard because we don't think in ones and zeros. And it's very easy to get confused and very hard to build larger pieces of software like that. So we use programming languages that let you say something like print hello, and then the word hello appears on the screen, which is very intuitive. It's easy to maintain. It's easier to work with. And so what's let us build uh, the software we use today? But the trick is that these high-level programming languages that we use are compiled down into computer code. So they're translated from something closer to English to those binary ones and zeros, which means the compiler has to be trusted because it could always change what you write. And he, he walks through a proof that I also walk you through in the book that shows that you could modify a compiler to act maliciously. And then since the compilers are themselves compiled, you then recompile the compiler and it hides your code. So there's nothing left on the computer in the, in the code that any human can easily see that shows it's been modified. It looks normal. It behaves normal, except in specific circumstances where it can inject this malicious behavior. You can use that for uh, secret passwords or to break into sites, or if you're voting on a computer, to uh, change votes for your chosen candidate. So it's, it's this problem where all of us want voting to be easier. We don't want to have to, like, we have... So much we can do with our phones. We don't want to have to like take a time off work to go to a physical location and vote on a piece of paper like how a caveman would do it. And we have these amazing phones and computers all around us. 
But the lesson of that chapter is, in most cases, uh, it doesn't matter if a computer makes a mistake because we can fix it. We use banking online, yes, but banks correct the fraud. Money gets stolen, they put it back. We buy things with credit card. Credit card companies cover the fraud because it's more profitable for them to fix the crimes than to shut the whole thing down. But with an election, uh, there are no do-overs. You don't get to say, oh, we checked and you didn't win. <laughs> that that causes unrest. This causes uh, upset and, and war and all sorts of bad things. And so elections are this really interesting edge case where since the result has to be verifiable and believable, um, and since elections are, everyone knows where and when they're happening, and since you don't get a do-over, it's kind of this perfect storm where a computer is supremely and uniquely unsuited for being the only way to vote. So um, that is why you should never be voting on a computer. If you are voting on a computer, make sure there's a physical printed uh, record of your ballot that can be the authoritative version of it because it's so much easier to, to change a total on a computer than it is in real life. Ryan, do you worry like I do that a lack of hard copies in this digital age, that analog option, if you will, is going to cause us major problems in the future because we just don't have records for anything? Yeah, um, it's it's part of what I get into uh, later on the book where I talk about ensuring you're never forgotten, where you want the legend of your triumph to exist forever. And what this actually is, is let's look at how information is preserved. And for one, you want information to last one year, we put it on Wikipedia. We want to last it for uh, 10 years, we put it in a book. We go up from one to 10 to 100, 2000. And what happens very quickly is you see that computers uh, are much more easier to, to lose data, to decay than, than the printed word is. Uh, we have photographs from other worlds taken by NASA that we've lost because we didn't maintain the data. And the insidious thing about it is that you can lose a hard drive with the equivalent of you know 20,000 worth of books worth of information that can disappear under your nose by just the hard drive failing or the, the magnetic fields decaying. But it's very hard to lose 200,000 books in the same way. Like you notice when they disappear, you notice if they start to fall apart. And so it's, it's not a reliable way. So for information for the short term, sure, computers are great, but CDs only last about 100 years. Uh, USB sticks, anywhere from one to 500, depending on how to store it and what quality they are. Like this is not long-term storage. This is, this is short-term storage. Back to computerized voting for just a second. Um, mm -hmm. I just got done covering South by Southwest and the biggest topic of conversation this year was blockchain and just how blockchain is changing the way that we consume media and entertainment. Sure. Do you think blockchain could provide the proper security to consider shifting elections to computers eventually, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road? Uh, this is one of the few questions where you can give an answer that's just one word and it's no. And the oh. reason for that is that one of the things elections have that also makes them special is that they have to be anonymous. You don't want people to know how you voted so you can avoid repercussions. And you you don't want there to be any verifiable way to show how you voted because then this cuts off selling your vote at the knees. Right? No one's gonna buy your vote if they can't prove you actually did what they wanted to do. And blockchain is a publicly accessible record that's permanent. And so yes, you could have an anonymous blockchain account that stores all your votes, but if someone ever connects who you are to that anonymous account, 
then your entire history of voting is now public. It's not designed for anonymous stuff. It's designed for public verification. And so uh, there are a lot of people who love blockchain and want to use it for all sorts of stuff. But voting is one in which it is uh, by design unsuited for. Great answer. All right, we're going to backtrack a little bit now to chapter five, solving all your problems by drilling to the center of the planet to hold the Earth's core hostage. The furthest that we've drilled happened in 1992. How far mm-hmm. down did we go and why have we not gone further, Ryan? So that was in Russia, the Kola Bor hole, and it's about 12 kilometers deep. And the reason we stopped there is because uh, it started to get hotter and more complicated than our equipment could handle. Um, The scientists digging, who were just digging to basically see how far they could go, uh, didn't expect the rocks to get as hot as quickly as they were. And at that heat and pressure, um, they started to be almost plastic. So if they weren't constantly drilling, uh, the rocks would flow into the hole and and seal it up. And when they first crossed, I think it was uh, 10 kilometers, they stopped and celebrated. And then when they tried to start it up months later, uh, they couldn't because it had been jammed in place by these moving rocks. So this was a scheme in the book where it's a classic supervillain scheme. We'll dig to the Earth's core. And I try a couple different ways to do it. And the the conclusion that becomes more and more inevitable is that uh, even the maddest science can't do anything. And it's it's uh, with our technology and anything foreseeable, it is impossible for us to dig all the way to the Earth's core and uh, either hold it hostage even, or we can, harvest we can't it even make it pa- We can't even make it past the upper crust. Yeah, no, it, we've, we've barely dented the surface. <laughs> so that was a scheme where we, we take a step back and every good supervillain always has a plan B. <laughs> and so instead of digging straight down, we instead, instead dig sideways and dig an information corridor where we can send information at the speed of light as fast as information can travel between two stock exchanges. And by doing that, uh, if you control that tunnel, you can get information faster than anyone else in the world can, which means you can effectively see into the future. You know what's happening in New York, and no one else in Toronto knows that. And this sounds like, okay, this is Ryan with a a wild scheme. No one's going to do this. But it's already been done effectively. There's a uh, company called Spread Networks that... Uh, in the early 2000s, connected these two stock exchanges. And rather than doing it the rational way, which is you send wires across the country and you you follow roads and you go around mountains, they dug right through mountains, the straightest possible line they could do. And by doing that, shaved milliseconds off their nearest competitor, which effectively allowed them to, again, see into the future, know things nobody else knows about these stock exchanges. And they could sell that for, they could rent access for millions and millions of dollars, people who want that information because they can make money with it. So this is the scheme that uh, is surprisingly achievable because it's already been done and uh, also lets you turn an initial investment into a indefinite series of fluid capital (laughs) to fund your other schemes. And, you know, no one's gone to jail for this. This is the most legal of all the schemes in the book. (laughs) We all decided it was fine. So uh, chapter six is time travel, which, as you talked about a little bit earlier, is so preposterous that you really don't even waste a whole lot of words exploring the idea of time travel. I'm curious, though, uh, does gaining access to the invisibility cloak that Duke University and some other uh, universities and uh, research centers around the world have been working on, does that perhaps enhance the potential supervillain? Absolutely. I feel like any sort of uh, invisibility 
obviously lends itself to any sort of villainy you have in mind. Although with the time travel chapter, I do promise that, you know, despite my failures to pull off any sort of time travel, besides moving forward at the rate of one second per second, Hmm. uh, if I ever do, and this is, I promise in the book, if I ever do, I will go back and update the manuscript before it's published. And so everyone's copies of the books will automatically update with that new information. (laughs) It's future ready. I love that. Hopefully there's not a butterfly effect that really screws something <laughs> else up in the process. That could so, possibly uh, go wrong. Chapter, yeah. Cha- so we talked about chapter seven, destroying the internet to save us all. There's one more part of this chapter that I wanted to ask you about. Even taking down a portion of the internet could be very disruptive. For instance, what experiment did New York Times reporter uh, Kashmir Hill run over the last few years? And how difficult did that make uh, her digital life? Yeah, she did this really incredible uh, series of experiments where she wanted to see what the world would be like without Microsoft, without Google, without Amazon. And so rather than destroying these companies or cutting them off from the internet, she just simply black holed all of their IP addresses. So from her computer's point of view, they didn't exist. And what she discovered was that, yes, the internet was built originally to be a global network that was decentralized, that could survive a literal nuclear blast and still function. But the forces of, of centralization, of capitalism, of economies of scale have centralized it. There are these companies like Amazon and Google that have these cloud processing platforms that everyone is on. And so when she blocked them, when she blocked Amazon or blocked Google, uh, it wasn't just Google and Amazon that went down, where all these other websites that she could no longer access. And she concludes by saying, uh, after she tried blocking all of them at once, that these companies have become the backbone of the internet without them. Uh, stuff just doesn't work. Stuff that you would expect was unrelated wouldn't work. Google has these CAPTCHA services that everyone uses. And so she couldn't log into these unrelated websites because Google wasn't there. And so it's a great illustration of how centralized uh, things online have become and how much power a handful of companies have over what we do online and how it works. Yeah, fascinating for sure. Part three, the unpunished crime is never regretted. Chapter eight is how to become immortal and literally live forever. Ryan, why do we age? And is that even an important question in solving mortality for a supervillain? Yeah, it's it's fascinating how you look at human history and there's all these, basically every culture has this, this idea of immortality, this fancy of it, because it makes sense, right? Like you look at how humans are born and they start from two cells and this builds a human body. A human is produced and that's incredible. Nine months, two cells, you get a human there and that's a huge amount of miraculous birth. And then somehow it's the maintenance of that body. <laughs> it's once we get a little past 20, things start not working quite as well as they used to. And it's the maintenance that slows down and kills if it's, if the disease doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do it first. That feels like a mistake. You can see how you feel like we should be able to fix this. If we can cure diseases, why can we not cure aging? And so a lot of scientists are working on this and some are looking at, well, let's, let's figure out what aging is because we don't actually know. Uh, is it the, the body wearing down? Is it uh, cells having this uh, enzyme called telomerase that produces telomeres. Every time a cell divides, telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter. And so maybe when these telomeres run out, that's what causes aging. Maybe it's a uh, force of nature, literally, where evolution, evolution demands aging. Because if you have a species that grew very, very slowly and lived forever as long as it could, 
such an animal would be outcompeted by something that, you know, lives fast, dies young, has babies soon and quick and reproduces. And so there might be an evolutionary pressure to have death, to not have immortality. And we don't know. Um, but there are scientists who are thinking about what if we didn't, what if we don't need to know? What if we could just look at all the symptoms of aging, of um, stuff that happens at the cellular level and just cure it? If we could cure all these problems, we wouldn't need to know what their cause was. We could just figure that out later. And uh, one, one scientist in, partic in particular, Dr. Aubrey de Grey, uh, produced, proposed something he calls uh, WILT, the willful induction of lengthening of telomeres, where basically you sterilize every cell in the human body so it can no longer reproduce beyond a certain amount. And then every couple of years, you inject new cells that have this artificially lengthened telomeres in them so they can divide indefinitely for say 10 years. And what this does is it cures cancer because cancer is caused by cells reproducing indefinitely. And they can do that because cells have the gene for telomerase, which allows telomeres to lengthen in them, and they can turn that gene on. What he's proposing is you remove that gene from the human body. So to get it to work, you'd have to re-evolve it, which takes millions of years, and instead artificially give you longer telomeres every couple of, of years. And this is a wild plan because uh, you're sterilizing every cell in the body, <laughs> which is super unnatural. But it's neat because if it, if it could work, you would have an immortal person who's now reliant on technology to survive. You know, they need civilization to keep producing the medicine they need to, to be this immortal being. Um, the, the downside, of course, and it is super significant, is that any approach to immortality, whether it's cryonics or mind uploading to a computer or cloning or, or what we're talking about, about here with modifying the human body, these are all technological or medical procedures, which means they cost money, which means there would be people who could afford them and people who don't. And that leads to this you know, cartoonish dystopia of uh, rich people who live forever and poor people who do not. And uh, there's some pretty significant downsides there. But a nice way that you can dance around it is if you as a supervillain are the only one who knows this is possible and you're the only one who becomes immortal because then all the societal downsides go away and it's just this fun thing you're doing. <laughs> you're the one who's gaining the benefits. And I like that a lot because it's this idea of like pure supervillainy, enlightened supervillainy, where you're helping the world by helping only yourself. And that felt to me like the, the purest expression of what a supervillain could do. Because remember, the supervillains, they see themselves as a hero of the story. They, they want to help the world. It's just their methods that are wrong and probably more selfish than most. But a supervillain is someone who works outside existing power structures to accomplish something that's not being done on its own. And that's also what a superhero is. Like They're not too different. It's just their techniques that vary. So is Peter Thiel doing himself any good, any good by harvesting the blood of healthy young people and pumping it into his veins? Oh, goodness. Yes, that is one of the uh, immortality schemes that shows up a lot in history is the idea of if we just blood from young people and put it into old people, that will help them live longer, if not indefinitely. It's one of the um, origins of the vampire story, right? Yes. And it was something it's, it's not, there's no benefit to it. Um, but at least now it's not going to kill you when we didn't know what blood types were, uh, that transfusion could be fatal and people did die from it. 
but that's, I mean, that's almost the most reasonable uh, immortality scheme. There's people drinking mercury in uh, the 1600s. In England, there was this idea of basically medieval chemotherapy where they give you mercury and other heavy metals. And if you survived, your, your hair would fall off, your nails would fall off. And once you stop taking the medicine, they would regrow. And they took this new growth as evidence of rebirth. Like this is a new body growing itself. The medicine worked. Um, there's, there's the documents from ancient China where what we see as symptoms of heavy metal poisoning, they see as, uh, evidence that this immortality medicine is working. You're supposed to feel nauseous. You're supposed to be unable to stand and have tremors and vision fade and all this horrible, horrible stuff. And that's just telling you this medicine is working. Um, if you want to be scared of what medicine used to be like, you can very easily look up old schemes for becoming immortal and see just wild stuff. Oh, yeah. People have believed some nonsense throughout history, for instance, drowning women to see if they were witches. Uh, chapter yeah. nine, not great. You, uh, <laughs> referenced a little bit earlier. No, not great at all. Chapter nine, which you referenced a little bit earlier, is ensuring you are never, ever, ever forgotten. Uh, you went over a little bit of what this chapter is about, but for you personally, Ryan, what do you want to re be remembered for and how would you like to be remembered? Oh, gosh. That's a great question. Yeah, because the, the chapter, it's Self is you're trying to send information further and further into the future. And when you look at that problem, uh, you start seeing basic questions of what is language? What does it mean to communicate? What assumptions do you have to have in place to talk to someone? Uh, and where we end up, a little bit of a spoiler alert, is one of the later techniques is make information survive billions of years, possibly out to the heat death of the universe, is something we've already done. It's the uh, golden records on the Voyager spacecraft, where depending on where they go, we don't know for sure, and what the dust is like there and what sort of things they encounter, the inside of that record could last 5 billion years, possibly much, much longer, depending on where it lasts. So this is something that is going to outlive all of us. <laughs> It's, it's a sense of we're touching the cosmic, we're, we're, we're dealing with timescales here that we can't even imagine. And the challenge at that point is we don't know how to communicate across that. We can make attempts and try to build things off mathematics, but we're making assumptions based off a single data point, one species, humans on Earth. So for me, I feel like if you could have something survive 5 billion years, the message is less what it says and more just the fact that it exists the fact that people on earth put this thing out into the universe and it's still there so it kind of reaches a point where what you send isn't really important <laughs> just the fact that it's there so to answer your question i feel like for me um anything would work i i would put you know a picture of my dog chomsky noam chomsky the dog send that out into space and i feel like no matter what happens I would feel so satisfied knowing that it will be there centuries, millennia into the future, and that there's a perhaps vanishingly small chance that everybody understood. But if it is, um, they might see this picture of a dog and wonder about it and wonder about who sent it and, you know, possibly tell themselves the best stories about who we used to be. 
Great answer. Brian North is a best-selling author, an Eisner Award-winning comic book writer, and the creator of Dinosaur Comics. His newest book is titled How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Brian, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Oh, it was my pleasure. It's uh, it's so much fun, <laughs> both to write the book and then talk about a book. Yes, and thank you for the shout-out at the end of the acknowledgments as well. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm glad you read to that part. That's a secret hidden part. That's right. Everybody else should too. Thank you, Ryan. Cheers.